the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 162. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now on to the show. Good morning, Unruffled. This is Sandra. Um, If you are just tuning in this month, um, you will notice that it's a little different around here. Um, It's just me. Tammy is taking a break from the podcast the entire month of May, and I'm taking over, and I thought it would be appropriate to do an author series this month, and it's really firing me up. I'm, I've already gotten to read a, several books that I um, have found myself with lots of time to read. <laughs> Go figure. Um And I'm super excited to um, talk to our guest today. She wrote a beautiful book, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to her about it. Um, Her name is Emily Arneson Casey, and she is a writer, teacher, and mother living in rural Vermont with her husband and two sons. A graduate of Vermont College and fine arts writing program, her writing has appeared in various literary journals, including Hotel America, American Literary Review, and The Normal School. Her first book, Made Holy, was published in September of 2019 by the University of Georgia Press's Crux, the Georgia series in literary nonfiction. She teaches at the Community College of Vermont and works as an independent editor and and manuscript consultant for writers. You can find her on Instagram at Emily underscore Arna, Twitter at Emily Arna, um, Facebook the same as her name, and her website is um, www.emilyarnasoncasey.com. So welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um... So I'm sure that the readers could, or the listeners could gather from your bio, but we do like to start the show by asking, where are you talking to us from? 
Yeah, so I'm in rural Vermont in a little town called Orwell. Orwell? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) wow. (laughs) It's very small. (laughs) I love it. Um, How is the, is it still nice and cool in Vermont? You know, that's a state I've never, sadly, never been to. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. Um, We have weird weather, so it'll get warm for a little bit and then cool off. And there's a potential little, there's a little snowflake on my Saturday weather. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) See what happens, right? Well, I'm in Austin and we are in full, we are kissing summer right now. Mm. Um, So it is, we're already in bathing suit tops, but there's nowhere to swim because all of the swimming holes are closed and flip-flops. So, um, anyway, I am so excited to talk to you about this gorgeous book of essays you wrote called Made Holy. Um, and, and I'm sure you know that this is a podcast about creativity and recovery, and you speak to both of those things, um, throughout your book. Um, so I just wanted to kind of start with one of the one of the first essays that you wrote called Ancestry of Illness. Mm-hmm. And you're in you're writing about your aunt in this essay and but this is sort of when you describe you introduce your own relationship to alcohol. Um can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, do you want, do you want me to tell about my sort of my story um sure with starting drinking and absolutely and ending drinking um so yeah I mean I think it's funny because I just told my story last night on a on a zoom meeting randomly but um so I guess I started drinking in high school when I was um, 15-ish, and, um, you know, what I remember is that I was an anxious child. I was a little nervous um, and apprehensive about the world, and I was shy, and so when I found alcohol, it really opened up my world. It felt like a solution for me. I felt like I could finally be myself, that I wasn't, I could be, I could be a different, it changed my body from being kind of tight and anxious all the time to being free and open. And I really felt like I had found myself um, in that moment. And, you know, I wrote that out for quite a while. Um, My family, my immediate family didn't, my parents didn't drink at all. Um, But I have this history in my family of alcoholism that if you come from an alcoholic family you you know that it's secret it's a you know it's there's lots of stories and secrets and there's certain aunts and uncles that will tell you the truth and there's certain people that won't and there's a lot of hiding um around addiction so that happened in my family and it just happened almost, I think, without anyone really knowing that they were doing that. Like my grandfather was an alcoholic and um, my aunt, my uncle. um, So, I mean, 
once I went to college, my alcoholism got worse. I became bulimic. I, I just really struggled with it. And I didn't see how I could let, let go of it because it felt like so essential to everything to who I was, I guess, to getting, to coping, you know, um, with my anxiety that kind of just kept increasing that level of anxiety. And um, it was then I started writing a lot. I was, I took creative writing classes and I wrote a lot of poetry and I really saw myself as, you know, like this troubled poet, this wounded soul in the world. Um, and it felt like a normal identity, like this is me, I'm just kind of crazy, I'm out there, I'm writing poetry. Um, and then I moved to Vermont. And I think when I moved here, I thought I could change myself and, and not be as, you know, addicted to alcohol. And of course, that didn't work for me. Um, I had ideas about um, how I might quit or how I might not not drink as much, how I might limit it for me. And it just, I was in this new place with all these new people all alone. And of course that increased my, my need for alcohol. And it just started to get worse and worse. And I did my very best to, to maintain and, um, um, I was in this relationship with the um, man who's now my husband, actually. And he eventually left because he, he just couldn't, you know, it was, I think we were together for two years and he couldn't, I don't know. I don't know how he stayed for two years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, mm -hmm. but, um, it was really bad at the end, you know, I remember, um, I don't know, that, I mean, there's so many stories about what we do and the insanity of alcohol, but um, what I remember is just that I couldn't have a relationship with anyone. I couldn't, I didn't know how to have boundaries. I didn't know how to take care of myself, none of that. And um, I just wanted to drink every night in the end. and. So he left for good and that shocked me. Um, and so at that point I did reach out to a friend who I knew was in a 12-step program and I knew about um, AA and 12-step programs because um, my aunt had, had briefly um, tried them out when she quit drinking. And that was my path, like I went into um, into the rooms and I just sort of, you know, it took me a while to really put it, put down the drink. It took me a couple months, but um, I have a sobriety date, which is April 28th, 2008. So you just had a sobriety um, birthday. Yeah. Congratulations. I did. I did. So yeah, it's been 12 years. And um, so with, you know, I'm, I've, I've did all of the sort of 12 step stuff. Um, I have a sponsor and I go to meetings still. Um, and 
you know, I also, I also have a therapist. I also have um, other tools that I use, but the, the 12 steps program has really, it's worked for me um, pretty well. So that's what I continue to do. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the gist of how I, how I got out of it. You wrote um, in, in one of your essays entitled Self-Portrait, you said, mother should have told me that booze made a kind of heaven in my body. Mm -hmm. um, as you described the first time you felt that at 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I relate to that too, because that's exactly what it felt like a sigh or a, um, yeah, like it's mm -hmm. the pressure's off for now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really was, I did actually think of my mother and wonder why she hadn't told me about this amazing heaven. Right. <laughs> it was a very true feeling. Um, mm. Yeah. And then when you were talking about your, when you mentioned your family and that it kind of runs in either direction, um, uh, you and that's that's how you know and then you you talked about how it is it's a disease of lies and a disease of a denial mm -hmm. which explains right how we you know as children I think if we have either parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles that that drink um it's confusing you know like it it I mean I had I had a grandparent that drank, but he was real kind of secretive about it. And he, he, you know, it just made him kind of sweet and quiet and, um, mm -hmm. you know, it did change his demeanor, but he never, you know, he was never like a mean drunk or, um, you know, he never lashed out. And, um, so it was, uh, it was excused and then not really taught, not really spoken of much at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I relate to that as well. You, you said that my particular creed believes that pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth. We discover who we are through struggle. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, Yes, I think that that's um, in looking back, that describes that describes my family, and I'm sure a whole lot of a whole lot of families. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because my grandfather was the same. You know, he was a gentle, quiet um, drunk, and he had gone through war, and I think that really affected him. But he never, you know, and he died when I was ten, so I I don't know how much. How, how I would have viewed him if, if he had lived longer, but um, I never thought anything was wrong with him. You know, he, he would always be drinking and smoking and he was kind and gentle. And I, and I think two things about that. One is that men um, get more of a pass around alcoholism, especially fathers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think women, my, my aunt did not get that same pass. Um, but I also think I feel lucky that I wa wasn't a quiet drunk because then you just stay and you have to stay in that 
you stay there. I mean, I think the loud, um, explosive personality that I had when I was drunk is what helped me to realize I had to, what forced me to quit. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause your circumstances, you know, never quite match up maybe with how you feel or the consequences don't. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, because inside I was miserable. If you looked outside of me, there were not horrible consequences or at least they weren't, um, loud and obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, I was still drinking when my kids were young. So, some of those consequences, I, I mean, there were definitely consequences and, and maybe there's things that even remain to be seen, but, um, but you're right. It, it, it is a different, it is a different animal. Um, especially a mother that drinks. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think about, I think mothers are very demonized. Um, if they're drinking or using, um, and you, you know, a lot of mothers lose lose their kids. Um, so I think, you know, I'm very—I I don't know—I'm very aware of the way I think that men and women have a different experience um, with drinking. And yeah, yeah. Um, so later on in an essay that shares the title of the book called Made Holy, you, you write about your aunt again, and this was after she had died um, from a long battle with cancer. Um, but you mm-hmm. speak about her changing her story a bit, her drinking story a bit, right, and, yeah. and from alcoholism, and then to call it, she called it then self-medicating. What do you think that was about, or, or why was it important to you? Mm-hmm. to hear her call it what it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, her. she and I had such a fraught relationship. You know, I write about how close we were at times. And then um, when I went into recovery and my, as my, my life evolved, um, we really weren't close. And um, it drove me absolutely bananas that she wouldn't, you know, cause she went to, she went to uh, a 12 step program for like a year, not even a year. I don't know. And um, then she said, well, I don't want to be labeled as an alcoholic. That's not who I don't want to walk around in the world with that label. And um, I understand that now, but in early, when I was in early sobriety, I, that, made me really mad because I was taking a different path. I was allowed, you know, I was on some level walking around with, with the label. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, like in that moment I, I wanted, I think I wanted a lot of, a lot of my alcoholism has to do with my um, expectations of people. I always, I get kind of caught up by that. And with her, I had expectations of what I wanted her to do and how I wanted her to be. Right. And so that little story that she would retell over and over again drove me crazy. Like I just, um, you know, because in my mind, she then was overusing her, her painkillers and, um, I mean, I think I write, well, who needs booze when you have uh, painkillers? And right. some of the essays in the book are really close to the, 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 
the moment that they exist in. So when I look back on that title essay, I don't necessarily have those same feelings about Mm -hmm. her, you know, because you change and you grow and you see that um, everyone does it differently. So I've watched so many people um, quit alcohol and and it's different for everyone and they do it differently. And when you're new, I think, especially in a 12 step program, it's, you're really holding on to that program because it's, it's your life lifeboat and you're trying right. to stay afloat. and you need to believe the truth of it and mm-hmm. yeah yeah I I get that and I get how then you know getting a different you know time allows a different perspective and how you can probably see that it can be both things too it can mm-hmm. be alcoholism and self-medicating um I I think you know mine was both um Right. Maybe yeah. it was one thing and it turned into something else. Um, I know for me that um, when I finally got brave enough to call it um, alcoholism mm-hmm. was when it finally felt serious enough for me to um, enact a change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I also held on to that because I had this notion um, that I explore in the book of it being, well, I do believe it is a disease, but I also had a, it, it provided a solution, you know, for me, like the, the way, the, the reason I had done all these things and I was terrible was because I'm an alcoholic. So it, it comforted me too. Right. Yeah. It gave it a, yeah, it gave it, it could exist outside of you. Again, mm-hmm. You know, like what we always hear, you, you, you aren't a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it becomes less of a comment on your morality or choice even. Right. Yeah. Um. Also throughout the book, you gently and beautifully write about um, your cousin and you Mm -hmm. talk about her in an essay called Prayer for the Scavenger of the World. And also you also talk about her in Made Holy. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you, how did you, I'm assuming that it took a lot of courage for you to write about her so freely. Um, How did you how did you gather that courage or why did you feel that it was important to include her in your story? Yeah, that's, that was the hardest part about the book. Um, was I just worried so much that, um, that how she would feel about it. Right. Um, she, cause she had at one point, uh, a while back I had sent her one of, a different essay that um, didn't make it into the book and she didn't like, she was upset by it, I think. Um, But when I was, so when I was writing the book, a lot of these essays came because I just needed to talk about, to explore the issue of, of addiction and alcoholism in my family. And um, my cousin and I grew up in the idyllic, world that I describe 
I mean, it was idyllic to me. I think to other, you know, other people might not think that, but we were, you know, we we spent our summers in the in the woods on a lake in uh, northern Minnesota in like these really rustic conditions. There wasn't electricity at my cabin. I think her cabin might have had electricity, and we just played outside. Did you know we had forts and bonfires and fishing and raspberry picking and whatever we so we had this um this similar origin story i would say and um that cabin is no more so it has an even larger kind of presence in my mind because it doesn't it's we don't own it anymore and the one i grew up in was destroyed but um she i really thought of her as my uh, like a soul sister in this and when so when I quit drinking I never thought she would quit drinking you know she'd always been a bartender and she was she's a little bit maternal almost with me um and, and she was a young mother maybe she was also a young mother she mm -hmm. had a she had her son very young um and she was very responsible in my mind she took care of her son really well. She was a great mom. She, she, you know, always had enough money. She had a, a home and she, she took her other sister in at a certain point. So, but, but she loved drinking, you know, so mm -hmm. I just never thought she would quit. And, um, and then she asked me about my, and this is this interesting thing is like, if you just, if you just live your life, people will ask you about it. And um, so she asked me about quitting and I was like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is what I'm doing. And she quit, you know, and, and she did the same thing that I did. She went to the 12 step program and she had this amazing, you know, year. And then, um, and then she, she, she started started drinking and using again so um while I went on the path you know well I took this path she took this other path and her path was really difficult um she you know at certain points was homeless she her son eventually went just went to live with her father um and, and doesn't didn't want to speak with her and um it was heartbreaking and also you know we as a family just um we were so black and white about it it was like are you using if you're using we don't want you around us you know mm. and and so it was like whole, that tough love kind yeah, of approach and, and that was that's changing now i really think in the in the mainstream what, the reading i've done about um what what approaches work and to supporting people with addiction disorders i think people are understanding that's a terrible approach and i would never you would never we didn't do that to my aunt when she was sick with cancer you know we did everything right. to support her you know and even just like having a conversation like oh if you're using what you know what can can you do like where are you going to stay what do you need how can you take care of yourself nobody did that it was just this black and white thing and and so i think recovery for people then is so incredibly isolating like how you can't be honest you can't i mean it was just so that relationship with her 
just, it was such a struggle because when she was using, we would be fighting or not talking or she would, she would feel like she had to hide it from me. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyways, I I wrote about it because I was trying to understand these things and I, I adore her and love her. And I still, you know, she, um, I still do. And we, we talk, um, we, we're still in communication today. And, um, but I felt like it was also a way into understanding what it's like on the, on the other side. So to understand what it's like to, to watch someone go through it and to, to feel the, the anger, there's a lot of anger, um, and just rage that someone was why why can't she just do what I'm doing? I don't want to be alone on this journey. I want you to be, cause when she was in the beginning, when we were together and it was like magic, you know, it was, mm-hmm. I was so grateful to have her with me. Um, and we didn't live in the same state, but you know, we talked all the time. Um, and I would, I, we tend to spend minis- our summers in northern Minnesota, where my family lives. So that's, I think, what I was doing was trying. And the book, you know, I never really <laughs> knew I was doing. I never thought I would write about this ever until I did. And um, any of the alcoholism, because it was, I was so ashamed. Mm. And then, you know, and and then I did and I had to, and I, and I, there's, you know, a part of it is your, especially in the essay, you know, they always talk about the essay is this um, genre of writing that the word comes from the French word to try. And so there's this whole kind of um, mythos around the essay as a place where we try, we make an attempt to understand oh. and, and you take, you take your reader on that journey with you which doesn't mean you don't revise because trust me, I revised this right. piece like a hundred times, but um, it's a different, it was so well suited to what I was trying to do, which was trying to understand what it, what it meant to be an alcoholic, what it meant to live in an alcoholic family, what, you know, how those, um, all of that, I guess, all the stories and the narratives around who I was and, and where I came from. Mm. I love that to try. I've never heard that before. And they all tied together um, so beautifully. And I'm sure too, that it just like to leave that out would feel uh, to not write about that. I would think would just, we talk about being feeling integrated a lot Mm -hmm. and it include, if you don't include all of your stories, it, you just feel disjointed. You feel, I feel, I've I felt like a shapeshifter. Like I would mm-hmm. show up one, one way and, and, and then show up a different version of me in another place, all compartmentalized. And, you know, they say that you're, they say in the rooms that your secrets keep you sick and, and mm-hmm. not being integrated and not telling the truth when, you know, when appropriate, not just vomiting truth on people, but (laughs) not telling the truth just felt dishonest. Right. Well, and it's, it's hard, you know, if you write nonfiction, you, there's other people in your life. So right. You're not just writing about yourself. You're always writing about other people. Um, Yeah. And it's, 
And it was a lot of that. And as I went through the process of drafting, I had one really close writing friend and I had uh, my sponsor and my writing friend said, you just need to finish your book and then, and then you can decide what you want to leave in and take out. And so I just kept following that advice as I revised and worked on what I wanted to put in and what I wanted to keep out. And then I had this, my sponsor who I'm really close with, who just, gave, you know, just kept saying, you know, turn it over, turn it over, turn it over. Your higher power is going to guide you if, if you're willing to, to be quiet and listen. And so it was, you know, I feel in general, my life is a lot of blind faith, just moving. You know, I feel like I can see maybe a week ahead of me. Right. I, I have no idea what, you know, I, there's very little, the stable things in my life are my relationships. And um, that's a good thing. But then, you know, I don't necessarily have a, a um, rooted, deeply established life otherwise. So it was, it was sort of that practice of just um, following your gut, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's such good advice that your sponsor gave you um, be, because, yeah, in reading it, you um, I, I you keep going back to the word gentle. You gently write about your tender and your care mm-hmm. of how you describe addiction in your family. And, um, and that really, that, that really comes through. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing when my, when my cousin did read it and, and what I hoped all along was that she would see how much I loved her and how much, you know, how much I was with her in spirit when she was going through these things. Um, and I think she did, I think she did feel that. Mm. Well, good. Um, you talk a, a lot about creativity or, or you know, creation mm-hmm. um, in your book. And uh, I, I, I'm going to read a couple of passages because I, I just love them. And I'm going to let you talk about maybe the difference, mm-hmm. you know, writing and writing when you were still a, a – drinker and, and versus, you know, riding sober. Um, you talk about your, he was your boyfriend at the time, Josh, who's now your husband, but, um, Mm -hmm. and how he thought at the time that he could only reach artistic brilliance by, um, getting high. And I love what you, what you wrote, um, in response to that. So I'm going to read it. It's just a couple of sentences and it's in the essay called the blue room. Mm. I learned that brilliance is not of the mind, but of another place, the soft place that you cultivate in your own silence, the place you get to when you understand that words only point at the truth language will never do but it is all we have brilliance is the dark night where you face yourself alone sober silent mm-hmm. and then you talk about it a little more too later in an, in another essay called kind of kind of blue where you're mm-hmm. talking uh, and and again you talk about um well, the whole essay really is about going finding that place of of creativity without alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I mean, before, so before I quit, I wrote 
a lot of poetry, I guess, when I was drunk. And I had that idea that my, my husband had then too, that I wouldn't be able to create without my, without it. Um, yeah, it's so, I don't know, it's so, there's so much to that, right? Um, I, I learned, of course, in sobriety that, um, that my create, I was afraid of my creativity and I was afraid to, to take it seriously. I was afraid to, um, and I really didn't know how to cultivate it. And, um, you know, a lot of it comes from going, digging down to that really um, difficult place of, of brutal honesty about your life. And I think that's true, not just for a creative nonfiction writer, but for, for any artist. I think we're telling the story of our lives as honestly as we can. And in doing that, we expose the world around us um, and relationships and all sorts of things, right? But I couldn't do that because I didn't have an honest relationship with myself. I didn't, mm -hmm. couldn't, I was so afraid. And to the point that I think, you know, I didn't even know I was afraid. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I was fearless and just like a real badass feminist, fearless lady running through the world. And, and I was so afraid, just so overwhelmed with fear and self-doubt. And, um, you know, I still have that, but I now slowly um, have been able to to say, no, it's okay to be afraid. I, I can still... I might feel feel like um, I'm not good enough, or this thing I'm writing isn't good enough, or whatever. But I can let go of that too, and just say, "Well, I'm just gonna play around with this and see." And and then you get sort of a feeling when you're onto something, right? So mm -hmm. when you're getting into that place where you know it's, you're a little bit nervous, you get a little bit nervous, but excited and you know you're getting into territory that's important to you and that you you need to to explore and um yeah i mean it's such a long process and a long journey and it and it changes year to year it shifts um for me in in terms of what it looks like but i think what what it happened for me is that i allowed myself to be dedicated to my creativity and I couldn't do that. You know, I remember this time I was like, well, mom, should I get my master's in counseling or my master's in creative writing? You know, and she, of course, said, we'll get your master's in counseling because that's practical like, and you can <laughs> yeah. Yeah, write in the periphery of your day. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, there's a lot of writers who do practical things, mm -hmm. um, but I'm just not that type of person. I can't. Um, I absolutely struggled to do things that I don't really believe in. So 
you know, I didn't do that. I went and I got this master's in creative writing and I paid for it and it was a wild choice. And, you know, nobody would look at that and say, that was a great idea, Mm -hmm. but it was essential for me because I, I got what I needed there. I I learned how to be a writer and I learned how to take myself seriously. Um, So there's a lot of that, you know, you need, you need mentors too. You need people that are there saying, yes, this is an essay. This is a book. This is real. Like your thoughts about, you know, your, your funny little thoughts that you're having as you walk down the street or something about your childhood or your, your experience with, with a barista, like those have value. You know, I could tell, I could in an essay write about, the most mundane things and and they would have and I can make them valuable. They could offer something to the world. Um, And then the hardest thing, you know, it was so hard to publish a first book. It's just, it's for me, it was basically intolerable. Um, I just felt horrible. I felt like I, like I had um, uh, that I had exposed myself and everyone was going to hate me. And, um, it was a terrible book, you know, and <laughs> which was my disease, like coming up in full force. Right. But it is a courageous act. It really is. Yeah, I think any yeah. creative, any creative work that you've, that you put out there for others to um, validate is a, is a, is a very courageous act. It is. Yes. Yes. Especially, you know, those first, times um the first that you do even like the first time you like share a poem or a story with a friend that you've written it's it's takes so much I don't know it just shows us how intimate we are with our creativity and how how vulnerable we are Mm -hmm. and yeah but I love how you said that you gave yourself permission to make it a priority yeah and, and we have to do that, I think, especially as women, especially as mothers, you have to, you know, my best friend, like, w- will say to me, like, it is your God-given right to be happy. <laughs> and I'll be like, <laughs> like, if that means you're never going to make enough money, that's what it means. And um, I love that. You know, yeah. it is. it's your right to pursue what makes you happy in this short, short life. In you know, right. Regardless of what society says, if it's that you're valuable or worthy or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even if nothing that we write or create like goes into the, even leaves our, our room, like it's still our right to, to be ourselves. I love that. I'm going to write that on a sticky note. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah, I know this is gonna, that's gonna be so helpful to our listeners because we, yeah, that's a, that's a a topic that comes up a whole lot, you know, especially Mm -hmm. women that are, that, that serve in a lot of roles, um, mother, wife, sister, daughter, caretaker, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to, um, feel like it's valuable enough to carve out the time and yeah. or make it a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
I, I love that you are so nostalgic <laughs> and I just, I really like, I just kept thinking, are you always pulled by nostalgia or was this just like a temporary space that you conjured to write these essays? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was so, it, it, when I was writing, I almost felt like every time I sat down, I wanted to rewrite and recreate um, the, this, my childhood, this time before, or even like these moments with my husband when we were younger. Um, I'm sentimental, really, like to be, to be really honest, I, my husband took down this clothesline in the yard. So we live on all this land. It's his family's land and his grandma in his grandmother's old house. And there was this clothesline that's very old and rotting and it had lichen on it. And, and I, we've lived here for two years and I would go out to the clothesline and hang stuff and think of his grandma, grandma June. And I met her. I didn't really get to know her, but I had met her. Um, she, she was also an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I don't know that anyone in his family would, well, they probably would, but, um, and I would stand at the clothesline and I would feel her presence. Like just, that was the only place I really felt her. I th I knew that grandpa George was not hanging clothes. Right. And I just knew that she, I just felt like, Oh, what is it like to be her? I mean, I had, <laughs> anyways, my husband took the clothesline down. He wanted to, he asked me first and I said, no, no, you, you can't please. I really need this, you know, like, Oh, and I didn't want him to take it down because I get so kind of involved in these uh, in emotional stories or about um, the past, I guess. Yeah, the past. Yeah. So, I mean, but I said, okay, you got to take it down, take it down. But save that wood. I might do something with it. <laughs> and so it's like sitting in the yard. But I have, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of obsessed with death and dying and with the the the, you know, with who came before us and, you know, there's a tiny graveyard up the hill and I love, I love that. I like to go there and look at the people that lived here and think about it and wonder what their lives were like. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, what it is. So I, I'm not nostalgic for my childhood as much now. And I think it's cause I, I wrote it out of me. And right. I, you know, you have those things like I was just reading an interview yesterday where someone was talking about divorce poems and they said, you know, you got to write as many of those as you can, as you need to. And when you're done, you're done. And so in a way I'm a little done with my childhood, although that's, uh, it's sort of just, it's like the, you know, it's like my basement, like it's always my mm -hmm. foundation, of course. And then there's new things to be sentimental about. So now I'm, I'm like nostalgic for, when my sons were babies or right so I guess yeah I guess <laughs> I think in your I can't and I didn't highlight it so I can't remember which essay it was but you were saying you were imagining stories about people that lived along the highway mm -hmm. you were asking your husband like you don't do this why don't you do this <laughs> he's like I yeah yeah don't <laughs> I love I just love and it has a lot to do with landscape for me and houses and place mm -hmm. place. So thinking about who lives here and what their life is like 
I mean, I just absolutely love that for some reason. <laughs> well, you're a writer. That's so, that's, a, yeah, you picked the right career then. Um, and you, you also write, I loved how you just weave nature in and out of every landscape, nature, your, your immediate surroundings weave in and out of all of your essays. And I loved that. And I grew up also like on 10 acres with a pond and, you know, I was always in, in a tree, uh, Uh you know, for hours after school, like just doing nothing but climbing trees and, and, or walking out to the pond or idyllic too. When I look back, you know, of course, then I, I would have, when I escaped when I was, you know, 17 Mm -hmm. to go to college in a town that honestly wasn't a whole lot bigger than the town I grew up in, but still to me, it was the metropolis. And, um, you know, I was always embarrassed by, by my, by my roots. And, Mm -hmm. but, but now looking back, it was completely idyllic. And um, does, is nature still play a big being outside and, and being on the lake or being in the woods? Is that still a call to you? Is that something that you still long for yeah yeah that's yeah and it's still a part of my writing like almost everything I write has nature and landscape and um I feel you know like right now I'm just so grateful that we're we're out here and that we can just walk out the door and kind of walk we we have a pond here too and walk to the pond or just even just sit you know um in a field so it does and I feel most at home in nature and walking in the woods I think is just incredibly calming for me so I don't know you know I don't know like it's and I always think about one of my friends who grew up in the city and I don't know I think how did you do that but she's always like, there's trees there, you know, there's, <laughs> <Right>. there's parks. <laughs> but I love, I mean, and, and it's funny because on some level, like this scenario with the quarantine is just on some level, like on one very like uh, selfish level, it's my, um, you know, it's like my ideal life because I love just being at home and having my kids here and my husband and we're gardening and we're walking and um you know that speaks to like this incredible amount of privilege but I do love just kind of being in nature and being um slow and having like a slow life Mm, (laughs) I guess yeah yeah and it's it's you know it's not cool and it's it's not necessarily like the cool thing to do I guess so I I um but it's me you know yeah 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 it's where you feel you feel most at home um Mm -hmm. yeah i you know live in a city now but i my daydreams are always about living in a cabin in the desert or in the forest or that's (laughs) all of my daydreams go there (laughs) just being completely off the grid and you know and I think that you know and I love fashion and I love Mm -hmm. things that are considered I don't know urban but right yeah but yeah yeah but I but but 
but that's always where I go. That's always where I go when I'm visualizing just, you know, that, and I, the ideal at place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. Cause I always think, well, what is it? Why is it like that? Like, because I think it's gener- like every generation is sort of longing for the, this other reality that isn't as busy or, or as, <sighs> I mean, I don't know. I could go on and on about that. I don't, I, I think I struggle with um, the idea of the daily grind. So that's probably the, the draw to the cabin and the, yeah. Right. Everything about that, that dream. Mm. And do your, do you, but do your kids go to school normally? Are they old enough? I'm not sure how old your kids are, but. Yeah, one of them does. Mm -hmm. I have a a second grader and then my other son is in preschool. So he was going a a couple, three days a week. Um, But my husband's a kindergarten teacher. So yeah, yeah, they all go to the same school and he brings them and it's like the best situation Oh, it for sounds. Me ever. <laughs> oh, it does. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. And, it, and yeah, and but then I I can see how you're appreciating this time together too. It's just yeah, I know. I keep every time I get a little fussy, a little crunchy, I think, you know, I will when this is over, whatever, kids are back in school and I will I will long for these these little moments that we've had, this little pocket of time. Yeah, I mean, because I've read, I, I've read a lot about like homeschoolers and stuff, and there's a whole kind of way that we have to learn to to live together again and figure out how to do that without um, killing each other. Right. <laughs> but I mean, there's a whole rhythm that you have to get into, and um, and I love that. Like my kids just kind of roll around the house, and you know, they're like constantly listening to podcasts or whining to watch some video but they're also doing all kinds of interesting creative stuff on their own and I I love watching kids when they're free to just roam yeah my kids are too they're just kind of you know they'll of course they take you know some time out throughout the day but it's not super structured I gotta say (laughs) I think regular listeners to this podcast would not be surprised that I'm not super structured with their schedule but um you know they get their work done but then it's been fun to just watch them follow their curiosity you know like I think I like I feel like I need to I want to paint something and right now my son he's a teenager and he's like on this he, I have to go pick him up some canvases from yeah. the art store because he just wants to paint. And I just love, I mean, rarely do they get this opportunity to just kind of follow their whims. And so it's been yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, I hope, you know, my hope is that we, we can embrace more of this kind of free freedom. Right. Probably. Yeah. Um, ironically to call it that, but yeah, it's great just watching them come up with these, these, my sons right now are really obsessed with wolves. So they listen to wolf podcasts, they, oh, read that's so cute. they have plastic wolves, there's battles and people, wolves are dying and getting buried and, you know, and they're just, it's like this endless 
creation for them and they're they're working out all these ideas in their head you know the idea about territory and death and you know um family you know like who's your pack Mm -hmm. so that kind of stuff is so fun to watch if you you know yeah yeah definitely um right it's 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 helpful to because it's not all just wonderful either you know? it's, not, <laughs> no. it's not the old the whole that's not the full story <laughs> um mm-hmm. but it is it is it is a good practice to just kind of find the little pockets of gratitude mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah 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 you know it's a struggle to getting out of getting out of bed in the morning right <laughs> struggle right now and there's like a extra layer of exhaustion going on and, um that you just can't explain right, right? you're like why am I so tired <laughs> what did I do I didn't even do anything you know I don't know what it, I I do not know what it is but it's okay to sleep late and let your kids watch tv while you're sleeping in yeah I agree I agree we're not we're not trying to overachieve over here at all. <laughs> nope, not no. And that you know, overachieving was probably what what killed my creativity. Yes, you're absolutely past, you know, right. Like, so much of creativity, ha- and I teach, um, I teach like English comp and writing and stuff. And I always use Anne Lamott's essay, "Shitty First." a shitty first draft Mm -hmm. and tell my students, you know, just let yourself write a piece of shit. Like, do not worry about it. This is not the final draft. Just write it, just get it done. Um, And sometimes that's the best advice. I think when we're, when we're working on something and we feel we're starting to judge ourselves. Mm, Yes, I agree. I, yeah, I've, I've taken her advice a lot too. I've been in a writing workshop, club workshop on and off for about since I got sober. So like Mm -hmm. almost for six years and, um, yeah, but it's so hard. It's hard to write the shitty first draft. I I think it's hard (laughs) to just let yourself just travel, um, without this, without the, the, the self-talk and the inner critic making you stop and edit and rewind and all of that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so I go back to that advice often. I wanted to ask you, do you have like a, like a spiritual practice or like a meditation practice that you do that kind of gets you Mm -hmm. in that, that place, that blue space? (laughs) Like create for creativity? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess for creativity, but if it, if not for creativity, then, then recovery. Yeah, I mean, my spiritual practice is something I always think about. Um, but, you know, I don't meditate regularly. And um, I don't necessarily have a set practice that I do. I mean, there's things that I do, like I run a lot and I walk. Oh, yeah. That's, like that's yeah. meditative. I think so. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the thing, the thing, there's something in me that's um, really, um, right now at least, this has not always been the case, but really like kind of struggles with practices. But, you know, I have little things, like I have little trinkets, like 
my a lavender candle that I light. <laughs> so like and a ritual. Yeah, a little bit. Yes, but I won't. I I won't commit to the ritual. Like I won't do it every time. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna light this candle. It's on my desk. Oh, I have you know I have this little things on my desk. You know, I have a picture of my aunt over my desk. I have a picture of my great aunt Zeta. You know, those are kind of my my guideposts, I would say, but I don't necessarily do the same thing. Right. I I I'm the, I'm the same. I'm I'm the same. I mean, I do meditate every morning, but that's only been within the last year, and mm-hmm. it's because I just finally, you know, it was like shit or get off the pot, Sandra, just commit <laughs> to the practice that, yeah, <laughs> and I know. see if it, sorry, that's my Southern, my Southern, um, crass is coming out, but, uh, you know, it just commit to the practice, Sandra, and just to see if it changes anything. And it has, and it has, it's been yeah, like this really creeping, subtle thing, mm-hmm. but also profound. Um, so it, it, it has changed me. Um, but, but the same, you know, I have like touchstones, Yeah. but before I would not also commit to like, I do this as soon as I wake up and then I do this and then, yeah. 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 It's interesting. I mean, I kind of got off the pot. That's what I did. I was, was (laughs) I'm not going to meditate. Like I, you know, I, I will occasionally, and I will do more of this, like, trying to get in touch with my higher power sitting quietly thing um it's a funny thing though like I just am very resistant I mean my my one practice is that you know I don't necessarily write every day but I'm always close to to that like I'm always working on something and if I'm not writing pretty regularly I get um just kind of depressed and um unhappy but yeah I don't know it's been something the the spiritual practice is essential I think and I think it's there in my life in little ways of noticing um the world and you know um probably my sentimental self but Um, I think that's, I think you're right. I just, by listening to what you've said about that, I think you're right. I think that's a good point. And you can call it that and, 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 and then it's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though, because I, I want to have a spiritual practice, but I have just allowed myself to be in a place where I don't. So this is, you know, I, I just don't really have a, not that I don't have a connection with something, you know, I do, I don't know what that is really, but, um, yeah, I, I, I guess it's sort of this, this place of just being and, and not pushing, not pushing myself towards it. It's, it's a funny issue for me though, (laughs) 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 because I will frequently be like, I should really meditate, you know, because there was a point in my life where I meditated and it was good but not right now. Well, it sounds like that you, yeah, you, I like how you said that if you aren't writing, you are writing, you know, cause I think that's so much of that too. I do mm-hmm. the same thing that it's like, I'm formulating things in my head. And, and I think that, 
um, part of a spiritual practice is, yeah, just being kind of open and um, willing to uh, just download something, you know, mm-hmm. from your higher power or just from your surroundings or, or whatever. I think that that's p- part of the creative act too. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah. What, you know, trying to just kind of be in the world without just being in the world is actually, I think really <laughs> challenging for me. It, it, yeah. Yeah. You're <laughs> definitely right about that. You're right about that. Um, well, I, so, uh, are you working on anything new? I know you said that you're trying to write every day. Are you, is it, are you uh, yeah, working yeah. on a book or new so essays? I'm working, right now I'm working on um, short stories. I, I, I kind of um, shifted to short stories after this book because I felt, um, I don't know, drawn, drawn away from, from the, the essay for some reason. But I'm also working on, I'm always sort of working on essays. Like I have a a running journal of quarantine times and, you know, um, but I think that I'm committed to doing this um, collection of short stories that is about addiction um, and just a lot about women's stories and addiction and rural, um, uh, rural life, I think, writing about women in rural life. And it's also about sexuality and love, women's kind of experiences around that. Um, but we'll see. That's just, I don't, I don't know how I got there. It just, um, a couple of, of stories came up around that and I'm pursuing that right now. Oh, that sounds, yeah. Okay. That yeah, sounds very and, hopeful. Yeah, so you you're you like the short form too. I I I Yeah, I it. mean I want like I would love to write a novel. I I love I read novels and you know I love a lot of them. I don't I I really don't like plot intense plots like that are pushing you forward, which I think is what a lot of people read for. Mm-hmm. But um I would love to, but I just don't feel quite there yet like yeah it feels a little bit overwhelming to me yeah well well we can't we look forward to that whatever you put out I'm going to read from now on so tell our listeners before we get to your three things um in your unruffled toolbox why don't you tell our listeners where they can read like a current essay from you or and please tell our listeners where they can buy your book Yes. So you can, if you go to my website, emilyarnesoncasey.com, um, you can, I have a link to um, a number of different essays and uh, there might be a, sh- there might be a short story on there and a poem. And I also have a blog on there. Um, it's called Musings that you can read some of my thoughts. Um, one of, I last month, I think I posted an essay about being in quarantine. So if you want to check that out and then you can get my book made holy essays. You can, I recommend, um, going to IndieBound. Are you familiar with? Yes. Yes. I was hoping you would promote something besides, I mean, everyone knows they can go to Amazon. So yeah, you can get it on Amazon, but IndieBound.com 
I think it's .com, mightme.org. They will, you can order books and they, you can get them from your local bookstore. Um, I wonder what they're doing now. Actually, I don't know if they're just sending them how they're, how exactly that works now that we're in quarantine. But I bet if you go to IndieBound.com, you can, um, or .org, you can just type in made holy essays and um, your zip code and then you could get more information on where to where to get get a copy perfect perfect um okay well emily we are at the end of the show where we ask our guests to share with our listeners three things from your unruffled toolbox and these could be things that are keeping you calm and less agitated and they can be recovery related or creativity creativity related and or both mm, okay um well my first one i think is um probably well known but really has worked for me i do a gratitude list every night and i have a gratitude list partner and so we exchange them um and if you don't know what a gratitude list is it's just writing down things from your day that you're grateful for and there's a lot of research that says this can change um, change the way you you feel about your life and the way you focus. So I try to try to do that. Um, let's see. My other one is um, I guess my other one for me, if if that's big, is just sweating I'll say mm-hmm. hot, being hot and sweaty <laughs> so I run or I when I especially when I'm in Minnesota I I take saunas we call them saunas there but sauna um and I did when I get when I was going to my gym I would I would use the sauna all um winter and there's something about being sweaty and hot that mm. it's just it shifts my body it gets rid of my whatever's in there um so it I really, really does Mm-hmm. It's in the hot. Are you the one doing the hot yoga, or was that Tammy? I was me. I was yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm not doing it now. Although I could do yoga outside, and it would probably be considered yeah. hot yoga right now. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it was me. I know. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Isn't it? It's amazing. Sweat <laughs> out of every pore. And I'm not a gym member, but I have a friend that got to take me to her as a guest to her gym one time before we went to full quarantine. We sat in that sauna like. Oh, yeah. Most of the time we were there, it was amazing. <laughs> right, right. My girlfriends and I would, that would be like what we did. We'd be like, let's go to the gym. And right. <laughs> like run for a few minutes and then get in the sauna. But um, uh, yeah, so my, one of my sisters actually converted a shack in her yard into a hot yoga studio. So Oh, that's cool. I recommend oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, so I love sweating. Um, and then my last one is something that I've recently kind of come across, and it's been so helpful for me. I really, I think I got it in therapy. Um, but it's this idea that you can't afford to pick that up today. And the idea is, you know, when we quit drinking, we say that to ourselves. You can't afford to pick up that drink today. And I've been using it with other things. In particular, I have like these stories I tell myself 
that are negative. So if I get going on a story, like, what are you doing with your life? You, you don't like your job. Are you going to get a new job? What are you going to do? Where are you going to live? You know, I have these kind of things that roll around in my head. And lately, um, it can also be like body image stuff. If you struggle with that, I've used this technique of just saying, okay, you can't afford to pick that up today. You're not going to go there. You're not going to talk about how um, bad you are, I guess it is. And that's mm. been so helpful for me just to say, no, not today. I can pick that up tomorrow, but not today. Oh, mm. I love that. I love that because yeah, you could, you could continue that sentence. You're right. Because the cost is too great. It costs uh-huh. too much to it's pick that too, up. Yep. Yep. It costs too much. Oh, and so that's it's good. so helpful because for so long I, I, I get in my head and I go on and on about some little thing. It can be anything that I, you know, it's either something that I'm going to lose or something I'm not going to get. Um, you know, so around aging, for example, like sometimes I get going on this whole thing about aging and how, how scary it is and how terrible and oh my God. And I just keep saying, no, not going to pick that up. Mm, that is that that's fantastic. I love that. I'm going to write that on a sticky note as well. That is so good. <laughs> Emily, this was lovely. I'm so glad that we finally made this happen. I you know. were in the Thank queue you. for a while. You're very patient and I really appreciate it. Um, it's just wonderful talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. And I just want to say thank you so much for your show. It's just it's just amazing. And I love how it kind of, you really, um, you know, you're not structured about it. That's what I love about the show is that like, it kind of just rolls out in this really comfortable way. And it feels like you're overhearing a, a conversation with friends. So oh, thank you. That's such great feedback. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Okay. You too. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.